According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Proverbs chapter 4 this morning. Join me there in Proverbs chapter 4. We were here, and we were here last week, yeah. I can't keep track of what day this is since we went to Kansas City for Friday, Saturday, Sunday. All right, this is Wednesday. We're here for a Proverbs class. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask God the Father to sanctify our thinking, to uh, prepare our hearts for the truth of His Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You for Your faithfulness. You are faithful, Father, morning by morning. You are faithful. And this morning, we thank You for the Word of God that goes forth. We ask for your hand of blessing upon our time together, that you would hedge us about, protect us. Father, open the eyes of our understanding. Lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I, th- I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, I am thankful to be here today. I, I learned after the fact that there was a, a tornado yesterday in Giddings, and um, I was driving through Giddings yesterday afternoon on my way back from Brenham, so thankfully the Lord was very gracious, but... Um, yeah, I got a chance to meet a, a missionary to Bulgaria, and there's a, there's a prayer item for you. And he was from Houston, and we met halfway in Branham, had a good lunch together and visited and different things there. And so on the way back through Giddings, there was rain and thunder and lightning and wind, and the Mustang was kind of tossed around. So thankfully, you know, there's a sail on top of my car, right? And the wind gets in there, and then the cloth lifts up. And At some point, I'm going to learn how to fly that thing and, and really have some fun. But the good news is the Lord is faithful and in our ignorance of not knowing there was a tornado around and he's in charge of tornadoes and he, uh, he got us home, got me home safely and we're thankful for that. All right, Proverbs chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 9, we're detailing the information there related to the collective or the plural sons. Proverbs 4 begins with a collective address to plural sons. From there we move on to the middle portion of Proverbs I didn't write down what slide this is, so we'll skip ahead a bit. There are subpoints here. We'll just scroll through these. This is all material we've covered already. The Kanah Chachma, acquire wisdom, acquire wisdom. Never feel like you have enough. Never feel like you can stop acquiring. We are constantly in an acquisitions mode, acquiring wisdom. Embraced as a son to a mother in verses 6, 8, and 9. Wisdom is embraced as a son to a mother for foundational grounding in the truth. And that's what we're contrasting now with the paragraph we're in today. But in the earlier paragraph here, verse 6, verse 8, verse 9, we have an embracing. Verse 6 says, Do not forsake her, and she will guard you. Love her, and she will watch over you. Uh, verse 8, prize her and she will exalt you. Now the watching over you is like a, a mother, or like a, you know, a feral cat watching over her kittens, so to speak, like the ones on our front porch yesterday. Um, but this is a mother watching over her litter, over her children. 
Okay? Um, Prize her and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a garland of grace. She will present you with a crown of beauty. And the, the, the dressing of a mother to her little boy is uh, the, uh, the imagery that we have here. Now that's going to transition to a different kind of embracing. There's a certain kind of hugging you do when you're a little boy hugging your mom. And then there's a different kind of hugging you do when you're a grown man hugging your wife. And that's uh, the different kind of embracing that we'll have in the, in the next paragraph and in the upcoming chapters. The kind of women you want to be embracing, the kind of women you've got no business embracing. And it gets very blunt in the language there. And we'll be detailing in chapter 5 and, and following. So we'll come down through these subpoints and get to main point 2, where we presently are. The middle portion of Proverbs 4 illustrates the point when a son enters into his own generational accountability. This middle portion of Proverbs 4, from verses 10 to 19, illustrates the point when a son enters into his own generational accountability. And so we see it in verse 10. Hear my son and accept my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. And, and the emphasis on your life as opposed to our life or um, what the life has been like for that young man while he was still under his mother and father's roof, while he was still in the home, as it were. It's a whole new life when the young man steps forth or the young woman steps forth. I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. And this is what we're dealing with now where we ran out of time last week. But the completed action of these things, I have directed you, I have led you. And both of those statements are uh, completed actions. Both of those statements are testifying to a, uh, a job well done, all right, or a mission accomplished, as it were. And uh, something that we can appreciate, something that we can embrace as parents uh, or grandparents, if you will, uh, that you can identify the parenting role is finite in this respect. That you reach a point and you say, mission accomplished, and you step into the next phase of what the Word of God has designed it, and what we call, what I call, uh, generational accountability. All right? To the point then when you've washed your hands <laughs> to say, I've taught you. Now you're, you stand in your own generation. And whether you live, I mean, how you live, and whether you walk in the Word of God or abandon the Word of God and so forth, your job is done. And, and good, bad, or indifferent, the best kind of parenting ever or the worst kind of parenting ever or somewhere in between and whatnot, when it's done, it's done. And they now stand before the Lord in their own generation. All right? And I think... Um, you know, we, we do what we can. We do the best we can. We do what we do as unto the Lord. We leave it with Him and say, Father, be, mer- be merciful, be gracious. We've, we did the best we could uh, as, as unto you, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, in the Word of God, and so forth. Um, were, we, were we absolutely perfect in every respect? Obviously not. No parent is. But wherever it is that we've fallen short, Father, step up and, and fill in the gaps. And, and I think the, the emphasis here, because they've got to stand. They've got to go forth. In Genesis, it's leave father and mother, cleave to one another, the two become one flesh, and that then begins the next family unit. You then become the next generation of the father and mother for uh, presenting the Word of God to the next generation. And that's what we'll deal with when we get to um, chapter 6, when we talk about the, um, 
the uh, responsibilities here to train up a godly seed and other aspects there. All right. Sub point A, your life is highlighted in verse 10 as the work of parenting is viewed in its completion. Verse 11. Your life is what's highlighted in verse 10 as the work of parenting is viewed in its completion. It speaks of this as complete. Now, obviously, does this mean then that you never teach ever again? No, of course not. But it's a different kind of teaching. It's a different kind of example that's being set. It's not... uh, it's not. Uh, it's more of a, of a consultation type role, and it may be asked for. It may not be asked for. In some respects, you got to step back and say, "All right." <laughs> in uh, somebody I was speaking to in Kansas City over the weekend, they're they're real new at this, and I wanted to learn from them because you know we're now sharing and are dealing with a married son for the first time in our lives, and and what do you do? You know. Um, He's got to be her husband, and, and he's, you know, he's still our son, but we don't tell him how to be her husband. We're, he's, he's in his own generation at this point, and, or how to parent, how to raise children when that day comes. All right, um, They may do things differently than we did it. I hope they do. hope they do things better than we did it. But if we come along and try to tell them what to do you know, all day, every day, what are we really doing? We're done. That assignment is complete. Anyway. Secondly now, point B. Oh no, subpoints under subpoint A. I have directed you, and the issue of Yah-Ra, there's different teaching verbs. We, we went through all these verses to talk about the teaching verbs. Yara is the verb that, that lies underneath Torah. All right? We understand Torah in the Hebrew. We know what the Torah is. The Torah is the law. All right, the Torah is the law. Well, what is the Torah? The Torah is not just a list of rules that if you violate, you face consequences. That, you know, is that what you think of when you think of law? Okay, I don't want to break the law or I'll go to jail. Or I don't want to break the law. I've got to follow the law. When we think law, we think rules. We think consequences. We think uh, whatever you think in terms of law. All right, but for Torah... The actual translation of Torah is, I understand it's rendered law more often than not, but the actual translation from Torah is instruction. It is instruction. And of course it has the force of law because the sovereignty of God is who's giving the instruction. And the consequences for violating God's instruction are the consequences for violating God's law. In any event, I, I think it's a, it's a neat thing that the law of God is instructive. That God uses law to, instru- to, to, to teach, to instruct. And that's what we're going to see in our upcoming Galatians classes. Why the law then? Why couldn't we just go to grace? Why couldn't Abraham have received the Abrahamic covenant and then Moses taken them to Sinai and given them grace instead of law? Why did he give them Mosaic law? Why the law then? What is the instructive nature of Torah? So, We've got some of those studies coming up as well. The verb yara, Y-A-R-A-H, number 3384, is the verb that means to, to uh, instruct. All right? It's got other applications for shooting or throwing or casting, but for this morning, we'll just focus on the instruction of it. Then secondly, parallel to instruction is leadership. I have directed you. I have led you, the second part of this verse. And this is what we want to look at today. The verb is darak, D-A-R-A-K, darak. And it's a verb, 
uh, were only 62 uses, not that many. 1869 is the Strong's number. We're much more familiar with the noun. We're much more familiar with derrick. All right, a derrick is a way or a road or a path. A derrick is uh, like when Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." Uh, the way. All right. Of course, that's Greek, so that'd be hados. But the the Hebrew equivalent is derrick. Did a lot of. Derek studies back in the day, and I was trying to find a third daughter's name. I have an Alethea, I have a Zoe, but uh, it, it's, it's not as beautiful in the in in the Greek when Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." I am the in Alethea and Zoe are very feminine sounding and very nice, but Hadas just d- didn't work. Hadas, I, I couldn't see Hadas. So, the, so then I tried, well, Derek. Well, that doesn't work either. Derek seems more masculine than anything else. So we gave up on it. And Lauren only gave us two daughters anyway, so it didn't matter. But Derek is the word study for a way, okay? Which is not just a physical road, but it is the course of your life. It is your way. It is the way that if you follow the Lord, He will guide you in the way. And so the verb behind that is this verb, darak, okay? Which means to... Uh, to pave the way, to be the trailblazer, to, to actually stamp down on the, on the plants and, and whatever, and to, to blaze a trail, to make a way, and to be a, a forerunner in, in many respects. So to tread, to march, to lead. And these are the verses we want to look at here with respect to Darak. All right? Now that I'm looking at it, I think maybe we saw these last week, but that's okay. We can review and get back up to speed. So Psalm 25, verse 5 and verse 9. I'll play with my toys while I have them. They left me a voicemail on Monday and said that the repairs are complete. And uh, the Hewlett-Packard Depot has uh, shipped my laptop back to Austin. And when it's received, they're going to call me. And I can come in and retrieve my laptop and return the loaner unit. So, Yes, sir. Ah, thank you. Thank you, sir. All right. So Psalm 25, 5. Are we good? Too much? How's that? Good? Not good? Better? All right. Let me see some thumbs. I want a happy flock. I don't want grumblers. All right. All right, we'll take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship and we can... No, I'm teasing. All right. To you... To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Okay? This is a psalm that deals with conflict. This is a psalm that deals with enemies. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. So there's the parallelism here, very similar to what we have in Proverbs. There's one way to live. There's another way to live. Are we going to be waiting on the Lord? 
That's the way we want to live, as workmen needing not to be ashamed. Are we going to be dealing treacherously? Well, that makes us sons of the serpent, brood of vipers, and on the other path. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Remember, there are several ways, there's several different verbs that speak of, of learning or speak of teaching. All right, yara is only one. But in, in uh, some respects, I like the, the definition, or I love the translation here, make me know. Make me know. It's causative. Force me to know something. All right? I can teach you something, but can I force you to know it? <laughs> you know, can, can, just because I'm teaching, does that mean you're learning? They're, they're both active concepts. If I'm actively teaching, you've got to be actively learning. And yet David is, is inviting the Lord here, demanding that the Lord causatively make him know something, cause him to know something. And I appreciate the, uh, the impact that a, a verb like that would have. Parallel to that is lead me. So there's teaching. And it's not just waving a finger and demanding that you do something. There's leadership involved. The example is being set. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. All right? So what kind of salvation is that? Is that phase one, phase two, or phase three? Do we think When he says, you are the God of my salvation, does that mean he's not going to go to hell when he dies? What does that mean? Does that mean that his sins are forgiven and he has eternal life? Well, it's usually what we think of it there. But is when we say God of my salvation, are we limiting it to just the phase one aspect of salvation? Or could we apply it as well to the experiential salvation where we're delivered from the, uh, the present uh, uh, sin temptations? We're delivered from the power of sin in our lives on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis. All right? I think the God of my salvation needs to be applied in all three senses of saved the, the phase one, phase two, and phase three. He's the God of all three facets of salvation. So lead me in your truth and teach me. And I appreciate the fact that in the process of leading, in the process of, of setting the example and leading in that path, that uh, the Lord is walking with us. We learn in that process. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindnesses, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. Now, how does the omniscient God who knows everything, how does he forget these things, right? Well, he actively chooses not to call it to his mind. It's not like he can erase omniscience or he can erase data, information that he knows, but he can sovereignly choose not to bring it up. He can sovereignly choose not to place it in the active frontal lobe centers of his thinking. Likewise, it's a good pattern for us to apply as well. There's memories I could dredge up, but why? What What would that edify? What's the point? Better not dredging them. Leave them where they are. Again, according to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. The next use of this leadership is down in verse 9. Verse 8 says, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. What do sinners need? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because just because you're saved doesn't mean you never sin again. Just because you're saved doesn't mean that just automatically you start... Uh, you start uh, glorifying Christ. No, you've got to learn. We have to learn Christ. Remember the New Testament? You did not learn Christ this way. 
We need to have our thinking renewed. That's the Romans 12 process. It's a, it's a learning process. And so uh, he instructs sinners in the way. This is what David said he was going to do in his confession of Psalm 51. He said, I will instruct sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice. He teaches the humble his way. So when you're looking at the sinners in verse 8, and you're looking at the humble in verse 9, are those two different groups? Or is it the same group? We realize, you know what? We need to be humble to identify that, yeah, I'm a sinner. I need to be taught. I need to follow the Lord as he leads. In fact, it's only the humble sinners are the only ones that are teachable. The arrogant sinners are not teachable. All right, so that's uh, Psalm 25. The next passage, uh, Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands, from east, from the west, from the north, and from the south. They want, verse 4, they've wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. They did not find a way to an inhabited city. They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses. Verse 7, he led them also by a straight way to go to an inhabited city. So there's the leadership, the Darak leadership, where he himself is trampling. He's walking their walk. Why do you think Jesus came and lived an earthly life? Why do you think Jesus identified with our struggles? He walked our walk. We can appreciate that. Isaiah 42.16. Oh no, Psalm 119.35. Here's another causative. Make me walk. (laughs) Make me walk. Oh, if only I could. All right. Can you make your children walk in the path of God's commandments? Can pastors make their congregation apply doctrine in their lives? All right. Well, this is a prayer item, and the psalmist is asking God the Father to make him do this. I think this is the ultimate, not my will, but thine be done. Father, I want to do this. Make me do this. Inviting God the Father to to uh, arrange your circumstances and details of life. Verse 33 says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. I don't just want to have an academic study. I want it to be real. I want to have wholehearted obedience to love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. You ever uh, uh, attempt any preventative prayers while you're in fellowship as a way to uh, overcome maybe uh, a moment when you could be out of fellowship? All right, so you know. When you have the opportunity, when you're in fellowship, take those steps. I believe that fulfills Romans, where we make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lust. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lust. Take some proactive steps when you're in fellowship, if you anticipate there's going to be some problems down the road, okay? If you're dealing with whatever it is you're dealing with. I think that's what he's doing here. 
Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Maybe, you know, under other circumstances, I may not have the appetite I used to have. Why not? Ask him to provide for that again. Ask him to incline your heart that direction. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity. Revive me in your ways. That revival has caused me to live in your ways. Okay. Now understand, God will not coerce volition. But if you give your volition to him and you ask him in your prayer life to turn your heart this way, is that a valid prayer? Seems to be right here. Seems to be not only a valid prayer, but a very mature prayer as this psalmist is asking the Lord to cause these walks to occur. Turn my eyes away from looking at vanity. Revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Ah, it's a beautiful, a beautiful strophe there. The hey strophe in Psalm 119. All right, the last two uses then are in Isaiah. Isaiah 42, 16. See if we can find a context here. I guess we'll start with verse 14. I have kept silent for a long time. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now, like a woman in labor, I will groan. (laughs) Try being silent there, right? I will both gasp and pant. I mean, there's just certain things you go through and you can't stay silent. Like childbirth. I will lay waste the mountains and the hills and wither all their vegetation. I will make the rivers into coastlands and dry up the ponds. I will lead the blind by a way they do not know. In paths they do not know, I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them and rugged places into plains. These are the things I will do. I will not leave them undone. What a promise. All right, and there's the leadership, the darak in verse 16. Understand when God is leading, he might take you somewhere you can't go yourself. He might take you somewhere that you've got no idea where he's taking you. The blind, by the way, they do not know. I don't know how I'm going to get there. God does. The paths they do not know, I will guide them. God knows. Darkness, is that a problem? Well, not for God. Rugged places, is that a problem? Not for God. Say, well, that's, that's, I can't navigate that terrain. It's too rough. Well, God can adjust it. Who do you think is in charge of geography? <laughs> These are the things I will do. I will not leave them undone. What a blessing. What a blessing. That's Psalm 40, or Isaiah 42. Finally, Isaiah 48, 17. So when we see these leadings, when we see how faithful God is to lead, does it give us any ideas for how we lead as pastors, as husbands, as fathers, as parents, as older sisters to younger sisters? How do you lead? See, you should teach and you should lead. That means if, if there's a, a younger sister that's, that's uh, following your lead, <laughs> you got your work cut out for you. Okay? There's going to be some trampling that has to happen. All right. They may not see where you're taking them. You better see where you're taking them because you're fulfilling the role in this capacity. All right. Isaiah 48, 17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, 
who leads you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commandments. (laughs) Oh, the sadness of the what-ifs. All right. I'm the Lord who does all this. Who are you? You're either the, the humble child that has followed that leadership or you're the arrogant one that thought you knew better, that thought you would just ignore my leading, as the Lord says here. If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river, and your righteousness would have been like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand, and your offspring would have been like its grains. Well, you're dealing with the consequences because none of those should-have, would-haves, and could-haves took place. All right, so stay tuned for that. I have directed you, I have led you. Back to Proverbs. When you walk and if you run. When you walk and if you run. And I like this. In verse 12, the walking is guaranteed. That's not an if, that's a when. The running is an if. The running is an if. When you walk, your steps will not be impeded, so there's no obstacles. You can't, uh, you can't blame your circumstances or details from keeping you from walking. God takes care of those. When you walk, your steps will not be impeded. And if you run, you will not stumble. If you run, you will not stumble. Now, why would be the circumstances why we might run? Are we running away from problems? Are we running from enemies? Well, there may be a time. There may be a time to run from your enemies. There may be a time to stand and fight your enemies. Think about time and time again that Jesus, they tried to put him to death and he escaped. He ran. All right? They didn't lay hands on him because his hour had not yet come. So there are occasions when it is the will of God to run. All right? Or maybe it's a positive running. They're, They're chasing after the Lord. There are positive statements of running. And so this is, um, oh, I I meant to, I didn't add this to the slideshow. There are four times that running appears in Proverbs. Let me show them to you. Because two of them are very positive and two of them are very uh, negative. And I can make that one larger too. I can limit it to Proverbs. Man, I got too many categories. Proverbs. All right. Four times that running occurs in Proverbs. The verb roots uh, uh, appears in Proverbs. Starting in Proverbs 1.16. Their feet run to evil. They hasten to shed blood. Here's a negative use. Okay. The crowd that you don't want to be a part of. They run. And sometimes they're surprised that you don't run with them. Their feet run to evil. The idea here is eagerness. All right? And in a positive sense, we should be running after the Lord. There's a positive sense to running. It's used of a man and a woman in Song of Solomon. Come, let us run together. And the idea that we're not just walking together, we're running together that life is a race and we're happy to see as much as we possibly can if all we're doing is walking we're not going to see so much but if we run 
we can travel further in the time that has been allotted. Okay? You say, that's all right, I'd rather walk. <laughs> I'll get there eventually. Okay? Well, there's times to walk and times to run. So Proverbs 1.16 is, is a negative example. Proverbs 4.12, the question is still open. Are we going to view this as a positive or a negative? Okay, I think I'm going to view it as a positive, but we'll see that uh, in the context and, and in contrast with these other uses. When you walk, it's a good thing. God's in it. Remember, the, 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 the context for this is, is embracing the, the, the Word of God, is living the example that David and Bathsheba have set. It's a positive illustration throughout this paragraph. So when you walk in the Word of God, your steps will not be impeded that the, the obstacles are cleared away, that, that uh, you're not going to be tripped up. There's no believer that's ever walked in the Word of God and been tripped up by, by the Word of God they were walking in. They got tripped up because they stopped walking in the Word of God. Likewise, if you run, you will not stumble. That's a positive. That's a promise. That's coming from God as an assurance that in this path you can walk and you can run, both in a positive way. Chapter 6. The things that God hates. Six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. So there's running in a negative way. Sometimes running is good, sometimes running is bad. And that ought to grab our attention, right? If Satan has a counterfeit plan and program, he's imitating what God the Father has provided for us. I'm not surprised that Satan has a counterfeit walk and a counterfeit run. A false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brothers. Finally, Proverbs 18.10. There's only four uses in Proverbs of this verb. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Again, you're running away. You're running for safety. You're running for defense and protection. Some kind of an attack is coming, and where you are is a bad place. So run into the tower. Run into a place of refuge. And uh, you want to run swiftly. You don't want to stumble. You know, you got to run safely to get into the tower. So there it is. A couple of negative examples, a couple of positive examples. I think... Uh, We're going to to view chapter 4 on a positive basis. When you walk and if you run. Now, this promise about stumbling, is that an absolute promise? Or is that a principle of applied wisdom? Is it in fact true that I can never sin again? That I will never stumble ever again? Is that an absolute promise? Or is that a principle of applied wisdom? Because we have it here in verse 12, we have it in verse 19, we've had it before in chapter 3, it comes up elsewhere. And then what do we do when we do stumble? Do we, do we beat ourselves up and think, man, I must never have been saved? Or we see a brother stumble, and we go, oh, well, if he was, if he was saved, he wouldn't have done that. No, we better be clear on it right here, right now, this morning. What are these principles related to stumbling? And how broad is the absolute promise? Or how narrow is the principle of applied wisdom? In other words, are these promises not even promises at all? Or are they conditional promises based upon 
the, the, the application of the Word of God. And I think it's going to be clear as we, as we see these passages. All right. You will not stumble. So I'm going to leave it as a question until you solve it for yourself at the end of the slide. Is this an absolute promise that you will never stumble? Okay? Like those who uh, mount up with wings like eagles. You will run and not grow weary. You will walk and not faint. You say, well, I'm, I'm weary. What's wrong with me? <laughs> God's promise obviously doesn't work. God's word is filled with lies. Now, wait a minute. You're not using his word at the moment or you're not uh, applying it properly. Let's, let's deal with this. All right, so again, what we're looking at here in verse 12, when you walk, your steps will not be impeded. If you run, you will not stumble. But how is that connected? It's connected here with, accept my sayings, the way of wisdom, I have led you in upright paths. That's the course of your life that has these promises or has these declared consequences. But these are conditional. You want to get off that path and go do your own thing? Do you think you can hold God to the never stumble promise? Not according to this text. What about verse 19? The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Oh, there is stumbling that goes on. But it's a different path. It's a different realm. It's the realm of the wicked. The realm of darkness. We'll contrast that with verse 18 when we get down there. Verse 18 says, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The perfect day. That's what we want to stay on. We want to stay on the path of righteousness. That's what we want to stay on. And we're not talking about whether you're saved or not. We're talking about the path you're walking on right here, right now, experientially. Or, are you going back to darkness? Are you walking the walk of darkness? Because if you're returning back like the dog to its vomit, we discussed that in our, in our training class last hour, the last estate is worse than the first. You're actually worse off than an unbeliever at that point because you're going to have the hand of God's discipline on you. You should know better. All right, so there is stumbling that takes place. The stumbling takes place in the darkness. It's the way of the wicked. It's, it's like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So if you stumble, don't blame God for failing to live up to His promises. Ask yourself, what path am I pursuing? <laughs> Why did I stumble? Why did I not see that coming? Is it the Word of God that tripped me up? Or is it my failure to be walking in the Word of God that tripped me up? Back up to chapter 3. We had this principle already in 3.23. You'll notice the imperatives here is to keep the Word of God. In verse 21, my son, let them not vanish from your sight. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. These are the benefits of living the word of God. They will be life to your soul and adornment to your neck. Then you will walk in your way securely and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. These are the benefits of living in the word of God. Now, if you get away from that, do these promises still hold true? No, you've gotten away from it. You've gotten away from it. All right. Psalm 119, verse 165. 
Those who love your law have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. Is that an absolute promise? Okay. By absolute, I mean unconditional all circumstances, right? No, it's not unconditional with no circumstances. It's connected to those who love your law. You can't just say, well, I'm saved. I'm never going to stumble ever again. Not according to that verse. It says, those who love your law. Are Are you in love with the Word of God? Are you loving it? Are you living it? There's great peace attached to that. And nothing causes them to stumble. And, and maybe we need to stop and do a word study on stumbling. We need to stop and get a concept on stumbling. It doesn't mean you never have any problems. <laughs> right? What does it mean to stumble? Alright. I hope for your salvation, O Lord. What phase is that? He's already in possession of eternal life. He's already passed phase one. He's looking forward to phase two and phase three here. That's one. That's Psalm 119, verse 165. What was the message of Jesus Christ here in John chapter 11? John chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. They just could not come to grips with this. John 11, when Lazarus dies... And Jesus heard the report that the one whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard this, he said, the sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Notice it doesn't say he's not going to die. He's just not going to stay dead. The sickness won't end in death. Okay? But Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Oh, he's sick. I better wait. (laughs) Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said, Rabbi, you sure about this? The Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? You know, I mean, God and his grace got you out of there. Let's stay out of there. Why go back? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What's he saying here? What's the whole point of this? Okay? Night is coming. He will be on a cross. He will be leaving them. While he's here, he needs to do the work that he's been assigned to do while he's here. So he said, after that, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may waken him out of sleep. And they say, well, if he's asleep, he'll recover. Anyway, it goes on. They, they just did not have any perspective for what it was that he was telling them. But in these verses, 12 hours in the day, we got the hours of daylight, we got the hours of darkness. In the daylight, you can see. In the darkness, you cannot see. In the light, you do not stumble. In the darkness, you stumble. So back to Proverbs again. Is that an absolute promise? Or is it conditional upon which path we're walking in? Thank you. There you go. And the idea to try to abuse Proverbs, to try to claim them as absolute promises and separate them, divorce them from the the conditions or the context of where those uh, promises are given, they're not absolute unconditional promises. They are conditional consequences 
for walking in the light or conditional consequences for walking in the darkness. And God is faithful both ways. <laughs> that's, a, that's the thing about it. Christians accuse him of not being faithful. No, he is being faithful. He's, he very faithfully watched you stumble. Very faithfully. Because he warned you about which path to be walking on. So don't blame him or accuse him of not being faithful. All right. Point D. The young man is now prepared for a new kind of embracing. The young man, in verse 13 now, is prepared for a new kind of embracing. This isn't the little boy hugging his mom. Taking hold, not letting go, and guarding. Guarding. I think the guarding there is the key. The guarding speaks of adult capacity. The guarding speaks of a, of a man accountable before the Lord. As Adam was commanded to guard the, the garden and failed. We're commanded to guard our, our wives. We're commanded to guard our children. That's a shepherding function. Taking hold, not letting go, and guarding. And we see this in Proverbs 4.13. Take hold of instruction. Do not let go. All right? That means that you are embracing something and it might try to wiggle out of your embrace. It may try to remove themselves from your arms. All right? Your wife may not want to follow your embrace, may not want to follow your leadership. Don't let go. All right? Embrace her and don't let go. Why would she try to let go? Why would she try to leave your arms? Any number of reasons. She's a sinner just like you are. All right? Don't let go. Don't stop the agape love because she doesn't want it. We love as Christ loved the church. Okay? And then guard her. That's the other part of verse 13. Guard her, for she is your life. Now, the object of these imperatives is Musar instruction. Musar instruction. What we have here, Musar is number 4148. We've discussed it already. We discussed it in the foundational introduction to the book of Proverbs. We are to, um, to submit ourselves to this instruction. Fools will despise discipline and instruction, but the humble will receive it. We've studied this already. It's used 30 times in Proverbs. I don't mind looking at them again. The Septuagint equivalent is the paideia instruction that we all need to be under as, as unto the Lord. The paideia instruction from the New Testament, 3809. So again, verse 13, take hold of Musar. Take hold of Musar. Do not let go. Guard her. Guard Musar. Now, why are we calling, why are we calling instruction a woman? Okay? This is part of the poetry. This is part of the imagery here. We understand that the Word of God is what we hold on to, but the metaphor is applying between men and women. That's why we draw these applications in our marriages, in our families, in uh, the different venues where they can be applied. All right, Musar instruction. If you want... Uh, the strongest number on Musar is 4148. There are 51 uses. Notice, 30 of the 51 Old Testament uses are right here in Proverbs. It's a big emphasis in Proverbs. 
The Septuagint equivalent is paideia. The New Testament equivalent is paideia. We're commanded to train up our children in the nurture and an instruction of the Lord. Okay? Paideia. And so we see it here. Um, won't take a whole lot of time if I bring this up here. Back to Proverbs. Verse 13. Take hold of instruction. Musar. Here's our uses. Remember the purpose clause for the book of Proverbs? Part of the purpose for studying Proverbs? Why do we have this book in our Bibles? What do we glean when we study this book? There it is twice. Once in verse 2, once in verse 3. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know chachma, wisdom and instruction. Chachma and musar. To discern the sayings of understanding. To receive Musar, instruction in, and then this long list of things that Musar will take us into. Wise behavior, righteousness, justice, equity. Those are all the things that Musar provides. Musar is not not the, the dry, sterile academic instruction. It is the disciplined instruction. It is the child training instruction. It is the instruction that has consequences for not learning. It is the disciplined instruction of a child. It is the um, character-building instruction where it builds character, all right? Doing your chores, submitting to the discipline, um, the process there. Fools will despise it, verses 7 and 8. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise Chachmah and Musar. Fools despise Chachmah and Musar. And that's probably where it comes down to in terms of the why Proverbs links those verbs together the way that it does. I think that because when Satan puts his counterfeits out there, he's got all these things that have the appearance of wisdom. Think about the course of this age and people that want to have alternative sources of wisdom. Other philosophies, other Proverbs, other things that they can follow and say, well, there's wisdom in that. But is there Musar in that? All right. Hear, my son, your father's Musar. I do not forsake your mother's Torah, your mother's teaching. Chapter 3 and verse 11. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord, the Musar of the Lord, or loathe his reproof. When God's hand of discipline is upon you, that's more Musar. That's Musar that you should have learned the easy way, but he's giving you the Musar the hard way. He wants you to have it. The disciplined instruction. Or loathe his reproof. You know, don't don't reject it. Don't hate it. Don't be mad at God for giving to you. Who do you got to blame for that? (laughs) Yeah, you. You wouldn't be under this discipline if you would have Learned the Chachmah and the Musar the right way. Now he's teaching it to you this way. You brought that on yourself. Chapter 4 started with it. Hero sons, the Musar of a father. Verse 13 is the verse we're looking at today. Chapter 5, how I have hated Musar. 
These are the regrets at the end of a life when the man uh, didn't walk in wisdom. And now he's facing consequences. As it says, this is when you're embracing the wrong kind of woman and you've given your years, your vigor, and your years, and your strength, and your hard-earned goods, and you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how I have hated Musar, my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. What a sad end. A believer in reversionism that knew better. He was taught before he went off the deep end. He was disciplined after he went off the deep end, and none of the Musar, either before or after, none of the Musar woke him up. I've not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost an utter ruin in the midst of the assembly in the congregation. Watching a believer die, the sin of death, is not a fun process. Anyway, there's more. Musar is used, like I say, 30 times in the process here. Suddenly he follows her. This is chapter 7, verse 22. As an ox goes to the slaughter, as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through his liver, as a bird hastens to the snares, he does not know what cost him his life. Do you know the damage you're doing? Not just to your flesh, but to your soul, to your nephesh. Take my musar and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice is gold. For chachmah, wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. That's Proverbs 8.10. Heed musar and be wise. Do not neglect it. Do not neglect it. 10.17. He is on the path of life who heeds musar, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. So this is what we should be clinging to. We should be clinging to the Musar of the Lord. All right? Either in the, in, the, in the academic sense, when we're living in the Word of God and disciples under His truth, or if we get off the path to the hand of His discipline, accept it as Musar and get back on the path. Accept it and get back on the path. The, the quicker you respond to the, to the corrective Musar, the, the, the quicker you can be back on the, on the directive Musar. Whoever loves Musar loves knowledge, but he who who hates reproof is stupid. (laughs) All right. A wise son accepts his father's Musar, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. That's that's Proverbs 13.1. Poverty and shame will come to him who neglects Musar, but he who regards reproof will be honored. There's actually a benefit. The hardships we go through in life can be very instructive. Hunger can be very instructive. It can be very motivational. That's why it says, let him who does not work, neither let him eat. It's a great motivator. He who withholds his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. This is the basis for Hebrews. What son is there that is without discipline? The son whom his father hates. The son whom his father does not acknowledge. The illegitimate bastard the father says, that's not mine. But if you are a true son, 
And if the Father, as the Father loves you, he will discipline you. So thank God for it. Thank God for the discipline instruction, the musar that he puts us through in the, in the corrective way that he does. All right, that's Proverbs 13, 24. Three uses, in, no, four uses in chapter 15. A fool rejects his father's discipline, but he who regards reproof is sensible. You can actually learn by it. He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. The fear of the Lord is the musar for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. That's why I, I linked the, the sinner with the humble in that other passage we were looking at. It's the same person. The humble sinner is the one that can learn from his discipline, is the one that will learn from the Lord's instruction. Otherwise, the fool is just going to reject it. All right, well, there's more, but I'm running out of time. So the young man is prepared for a new kind of embracing. We have points E and F. The path of the wicked is a terrible contrast to the path of the righteous. That's verses 14 through 17. We'll detail that for you next week. Verses 14 through 17, there's a contrast. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not proceed. So there's one thing to enter it, and then it's even worse when you proceed down it. You're better off if you don't even take a step in. You're better off if you don't even be anywhere near that path. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on. That's the wrong intersection. And the longer you stand there at that fork in the road and uh, play with it, toy with it, think about it, kind of look down gazingly at it and try to figure out, well, what's at the end of that path? You know you shouldn't be on that path. Get out of that crossroads. Get away from it. So avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they do evil. They are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. It becomes addictive. It becomes compulsive. The nature of that path, it it works in tandem with the habitual nature of fallen humanity. We are creatures of habit. And Satan knows that. He designs the path to, to feed on that. He designs the path to work with that compulsive nature of fallen humanity. So there's a contrast there. And then in verses, whoops. Okay, we will have to come back and get that ready for next week. And then at a point F, we'll handle uh, verses 18 and 19 because there's a pair of similes here. It's almost like the Lord in the, in the similes that Jesus gives. The path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. Think of that like the kingdom of heaven is like the kingdom of heaven parables. The path of the righteous is like. And then the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. And so Solomon gives a couple of similes here that uh, concludes this middle portion. All right. Lord willing, rapture pending, this is where we'll pick up next week. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your mercy, love, and grace. We rejoice, Father, in what you have provided in this text. We ask for your hand of blessing that our eyes would be open to understand it, that we would live it, that we would much rather receive this musar in, in the positive way rather than reject it and move on to the next stage of musar, Father, where under the hand of your discipline we learn what you intend for us to, uh, to know. Father, you cause us to know. 
And we would much rather learn this way than the other. So uh, make these applications clear, Father. And I do thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.